A quick note before we get started. Did you know we have an email list? Go to hpleadershippodcast.com and enter your email into the form at the bottom left to sign up. Get our PDF on common obstacles and teamwork sent right to your inbox. Subscribers get first listens on new shows and exclusive content. Sign up today, hpleadershippodcast.com. On episode 22 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Chip Mahaney. And you've got to go into that understanding that up front saying, you have to be ready for change. We're going to need you to lead change. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Randy Lane. Today we're talking to another Chip, Chip Mahaney. He's been in media for more than 35 years. His focus for the past several decades has been helping newsrooms integrate new digital technology into their business. He led a number of social media strategy sessions I attended in my former career in television news. Chip's now recruiting the next generation of news leaders. We talk about leading a company through change and identifying the traits future leaders need to keep the news business relevant into the future. And now, our talk with Chip. Chip, I first met you, I think, when I was still working for KJRH, which is the NBC affiliate in Tulsa, which is a script station. You were primarily helping us with our digital media conversion. It was just kind of when people were coming to the websites in huge numbers and social media was kicking off. And so you were kind of coming in to help us with our strategy and and stuff like that. I remember going through one class with you when I was still a photojournalist with KJRH. And then I think I did two because you came back every, I think it was like maybe once a year, I ended up seeing you. Is that correct? That sounds about right. I mean, you guys didn't get it right the first time, so I had to keep yeah. coming back. Because <laughs> things never changed, right? It's just a matter of the student's ability to pick up the lesson I learned. You know, what I, what I taught you back in 2002, you know, should have stuck with you by now. No, it doesn't work like that. Our business changes quickly, you know, as you guys know. And so there's always something new to talk about. Yeah. And then I, you also helped us out when I transitioned to working with The List, which is a nationally syndicated show that's also owned by Scripps. Mm-hmm. And you helped us kind of put together our strategy there, which was a very different animal compared to local news. It was new for us, too. You yeah. know, we, we decided uh, we were a company that took the brash and risky and, for some people, a jaw-dropping step to decide not to renew Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy on a bunch of our TV stations. Those are gold standard shows that, you know, America loves, right? The problem is they got more expensive and their audience got older. So we decided if we're going to be, and and we didn't own them. So -hmm. if we wanted to really take control of our business and look ahead to the future and try to hit younger audiences, then we had to do what everyone thought was crazy, all of our peers, and give up those shows so that we could then focus on creating our own. And so you were there at the very beginning of a brand new concept show that's now in its fifth year coming up this fall and now reaching a bigger audience than it ever has before. But we were the first of our peer companies to take on that kind of role. And now most of our peer company, most of our peer companies have their own local programming or, or programming units that serve their local stations. Uh, that was something that most of our peers weren't doing in 2011, 2012. And, and uh, you know, so we were able to lead the way in that way. 
And it's proven to be a good model for us. We're still trying to figure it out, but very happy that we made that decision. So let's take a step back and kind of talk about your career. Can you kind of give us a rundown of your professional career? Yeah. So I've been in business 35 years uh, as a journalist, started uh, in, in newspapers and radios back in, uh, back in the 80s and moved into television in the mid-80s and have uh, really followed uh, a media career all my life. I've spent most of my time, I started out in sports uh, and news, I've done weather, uh, all those things that are kind of part and parcel of local news. Over time, grew into management roles, so I've been really managing teams for the last 20 years, and also at the same time, starting in the early 90s, picked up a, a, a healthy interest and in, uh, knowledge base on technology. So I was one of the early ones really working on newsroom computer technology back in the early 90s, and so technology overlaid with leadership and management overlaid with journalism and news uh, is really how my career would be defined. I've led newsrooms uh, for the last eight years. I've been at Scripps, as you mentioned, a lot of that time uh, helping us build our digital operations or building digital uh, systems and products in our legacy television stations. Uh, and over now in the last uh, a few months, I've moved over to a recruiting role for Scripps that actually is helping us develop leadership talent that will carry our company into uh, its newsrooms into the next, hopefully, 5, 10, 15 years. Chip, I can tell you, this is the first time we've had a chip, a dual chip uh, like on it. our podcast. Stereo so, chip. Yeah, so welcome to the show. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to spend some time to answer some questions with us. You know, obviously our uh, podcast is around leadership, and kind of my main interest today in talking to you was you know, when we teach organizational leadership, we talk about three things, personal leadership, team leadership, and organizational leadership. Your industry has gone through a lot of change and is continuing to morph and change. And so the responsibility of leaders to kind of forecast where the business is going, forecast the future, I guess, in a sense of the organization is a, a big responsibility of leadership. In your role, how do you see your industry morphing and changing, and how is that either adding opportunities or putting a strain on traditional leadership versus kind of the more high-performance leadership of what we have to do to stay relevant? Well, the good thing is that every one of the people who listen to this podcast will understand you know, the, the, the topic we're talking about here because they see it for themselves how their own consumption of media, news, and information has changed in the last 5, 10, 20 years. So raise your hands, everyone, who still subscribes to a daily newspaper and has it <laughs> delivered to their front lawn every morning? Who still you know, has either an appointment or a mental clock that says, hey, it's 6 o'clock, time to sit down and watch the evening news? Nobody. I don't see any hands out there, right? I just no. doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen for most people now. Everyone, on top of that, you know, here's my phone. And your phones are probably within three feet of you somewhere. We're fed with more news and information than we've ever been fed in our lives. So you guys are so well connected in your communities. You know what's most important to you from your interests and what you need. So you're already connected to news and information sources that suit exactly your needs. No longer do we have the broadcast mentality or the newspaper mentality when you had two or three or four or five voices in a market that would, in a sense, filter everything that you learned about the world around you. Now you have millions of sources, and they can be customized. You know, Facebook's a perfect example of it. They can be customized exactly to what you want, and it'll be very different. Your phone is very different from your phone, Chip and Randy. I mean, they're just, we're all different. So that's the world we live in, and everyone gets that from a consumption standpoint because everyone gets exactly pretty much what they want right now. That's the overhead. That's where we're facing. So how do we then, we then have to adapt? I'll give you one thing about our company real quick that I think is the best thing I can tell 
Our company has been in business since 1879 or so, almost 140 years. We didn't get here by just planting our flag in one medium or platform and saying, this is the way we're always going to do it. We survived 140 years through depressions and world wars and generational changes and the baby boom and now the everything else that we've had by figuring out early on, we have to adapt. We have to adapt quickly. We have to find out where our audience is and we have to create products and content and revenue streams that will support all of that together. The good news is uh, for our company is that we know that we have to change. You just cannot look at the world around you and say, hey, everyone's doing what they were doing 10 years ago. Shoot, everyone's not doing what they were doing two years ago. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the way your own habits have changed in the last 24 months, I'm sure everyone listening can identify two or three tangible things that they're doing now to consume or engage with their world that they weren't doing two years ago. That's, uh, you know, that's obviously the preeminent threat to uh, a business like ours, that we're trying to provide, uh, build a business that, that generates value for shareholders and for our consumers and for our employees at the same time, and have a plan and a forecast so we can keep doing that. If, we, if a company was given to us over the last 140 years, we have the responsibility to do it for the next generation who will follow us. If you don't mind, I want to ask you a couple of challenging questions, and I'm not putting you on the spot by any means. It's just interesting we get to meet somebody who's got 35 plus years in the industry, they say, you know, it's hard to read the label when you're on the inside of the bottle. So when people are with an organization or in an industry for a long time and they see it change, the older people team seem to get the more they preserve the way things used to be instead of trying to renew a little bit. And in the news industry, what I've noticed personally over the last 20, 30 years is the amount of competition that you have now versus 30 years ago. Would you say that that's true because of cable and everything else? Or are there certain industries or segments that you play in that you really don't consider reality TV or other things like that as a competitor because you have your main line of business? Sitting from a TV station perspective, we still look at the guys with different channel numbers and different colored mic flags as our primary com competition. But in the consumer's world, that's not the case. Right. Mm -hmm. If you look from the consumer standpoint, if they were to look at competition among media, and not just around media, information sources, our primary competition for information to you, to each of you, is your friends and family. Facebook is, you customize your feed, or Twitter, same thing, but Facebook's even more personal, right? Because if you look at how Facebook's algorithm organizes your feed, it knows from your actions for your many years on Facebook what you're interested in. It knows what you click on, it knows what you open, it knows what you comment on or what you're likely to like, it's got all that user data on you. And of course, you've picked the sources that you want in Facebook. You've decided who you're going to be friends with and you've decided what pages you're going to like. You've decided what news sources you're going to follow in there. So you've made that choice already. You know, Facebook day by day, hour by hour, chooses what it's going to send to you. So that's really, and it's again, it's your feed. It's different from anybody else in the room with you. So that's as narrow as a competition, yet in a way that people can understand as I can describe it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we sure, not everyone on Facebook's making money. Your aunt or your, or your sister or your best friend's not out there to make money on Facebook. They're just out there to get their story out there, to share a funny quip or a great photo. But it's competition for your attention. It's competition mm -hmm. for your time. And... If you go through Facebook, just as an example, because many people rely on Facebook as their primary source of information. That's how they learn about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. That's how they learn greater things about the world. That's how they make their opinions based on what they read. So that's our competition. How do you monetize that then? You monetize where you can. And, and <laughs> other places, you just got to play 
to be where people are, even if there's not a path of monetization. So Facebook is starting to, I'll give you an example, it doesn't affect us yet, but with the, some very large national brands, you know, Facebook, as they launched Facebook Live this year, or last year, but into this year, they've paid some very large media companies to produce lots of content for Facebook Live. Now, they've told everyone else, we will elevate Facebook Live in people's feeds. So if I produce a Facebook Live right now, it's quite likely going to show up high in the people who connect with me on Facebook. That's what Facebook wants. But Facebook's not paying me to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe one day they will scale that more and companies like us can take advantage. So we're making money off their platform. You know, Google, we've been a great partner with Google for many, many years. You know, Google's a competitor. YouTube's a competitor for time and attention. And in some cases, news. But, you know, we find ways of making partnerships. We have a business relationship with Google. You're still chasing eyeballs, though, right? So your your rate cards are based on number of viewers, number of eyeballs watching your content that's out there. So that that has not changed for your industry. You're still competing based on that. So that's our primary revenue model, right? I mean, okay. you know, advertising based on audience, right? Yeah, audience. So, but that's not the only way. So we look at relationships, for instance, at our we have a local television station in Cincinnati, WCPO. It's the only television station powered website, wcpo.com in the country that has a subscription component to it. Hmm. So we're been working on this project for 4 or 5 years. We've been selling subscriptions for about 3 now. So we're asking consumers to pay a subscription fee to access content on the website. Now, most of our, all of our TV station competitors in the market and elsewhere, nobody charges consumers directly for content. Mm -hmm. We've, as an industry, given that away, right? Because we've taken the advertising dollars or just considered value added to the television side. But that can't be the case if we're going, because advertising itself is threatened. Advertising in some ways is a race to the bottom on price. Mm -hmm. You know, if, it's, if, if we're selling something for, $5 CPM or $5, $5 per thousand now, two years from now, it might be $3. You know, so we can't do that. So the subscription notion is we also not just want to get a revenue source direct from consumers, but when you get a revenue source direct from consumers, you also build a, loyal, a loyalty relationship with them. So it's not just about spread and reach and how many eyeballs or how many clicks I can get. What I value more than anything else, really, for long-term health, is having a direct consumer relationship in which we know them by name and they value us as something premium or better than something else. Now, that's a growing, you know, a small but but growing business. We have high hopes for that, and we hope that it will, you know, become the mature business like, like television is or even digital advertising is. But it's just one of the ways that we can, you know, uh, sustain our business going forward. Sure. There's got to be multiple ways in digital to make that happen. It just can't be one stream. You mentioned that you're in a recruiting role right now. What yeah. what kind of recruiting are you doing? So my focus is on news leadership for the next generation. So I, my primary targets are those who will be news directors or in old newspaper lingo, the editors of the newspaper. News directors run the operation, manage a large staff of people. Uh, they're secondary managers or assistant news directors or executive producers. So my focus is on that. But I the opportunity I get is to help groom what these rank and file or these newsroom leaders will look like over the next several years for our company. And so, you know, we look for people who not only have management leadership skills or those who have abilities if they're coming up to the ranks or we're going to promote them into their first role, but also those who are willing to go with us on this journey, meaning it won't be the same next year as it was last year. And you've got to go into that understanding that up front saying you have to be ready for change. We're going to need you to lead change. And 
you know, we'll we'll take you where we can step by step. We're going to expect you to take some risks on your own, and and we'll see where this goes together because we don't have it all figured out. I have a uh, friend here in town who's in the news business, and he mentioned to me recently that when he first started, there was multiple people that had multiple responsibilities. Today, there's fewer people with a lot more responsibilities, and he sees that as a growing trend. Do you? Well, I'm not sure what he's talking. If he's talking about just the organizational structure there, or like regard to managers, or just in terms of staffing. I mean, over you know, there's a couple of things happening in our business. One is new staffs are largely staying the same in our local television operations. Some research coming out from a group called RTDNA or RTDNA.org is their website that talks about the industry as an employment center is actually pretty stable right now, just in terms of television. Okay. But a lot of organizations, uh, because there's fewer large players, there's fewer companies operating stations. The, the laws have been relaxed over the last decade or more. Used to be you can only own a small number of stations, one company, and now that's now you have some big players uh, who own dozens of stations across the country. So you know that's re- that's created a different kind of organization. You can have more scale across the group, across the country, and oftentimes that means that they they structure things differently. You might have a smaller management base inside the the newsroom operation, but there's a lot more support from coming from corporate. Whereas when station groups are smaller, you tend to have a lot less corporate influence and more of that decision making. Not just on news, but in terms of strategy and the business operations was made locally. That's not the you know much more now. It's made centrally. By a large company. Hmm. And also technology has changed to allow people to do more things with less staff. I remember when I first started in news, we would use, you know, big uh, microwave and satellite trucks to do live shots. So you have to drive out there, you have to have some sort of expertise on the equipment. There's a hundred different things that could go wrong and you're, you're running under pressure and, and things are very frantic and stressful and you need somebody who is a full-time person who knows how that stuff operates. Just before I left the news industry, the TVU backpacks became more prevalent. It's basically just a backpack that there's one button, like a power on button, and then you plug in your camera to the side and using cellular networks, it has a bunch of air cards inside, it broadcasts back to the master control. And there's absolutely no extra expertise you need to have. There's very few moving parts. It was still kind of just beginning when I started using it. So there were some glitches if you were in a part of town with poor cell phone reception. You can have several people out doing live shots if you have several of these backpacks and you don't have to have them trained to a level of expertise that you do to operate a, a microwave or a satellite truck. So technology has changed as well. And the, you know the equipment is much smaller the image can be much better. And so people are doing more with less, you know, laptops in the field. You you can bring an entire editing station with you, you know, in your backpack, which was not possible when I first started. And phones. This telephone right here, my iPhone 6 is, you know, it pretty much has all the tools that a TV station back in the 1970s would have had 1980s. I mean, it's all right there and it's faster and it's right there. I can broadcast again. Facebook gives us that great platform, Facebook Live. All I got to do is basically hit a button on Facebook and now I can broadcast my message to the world. You've, we've seen that in, you know, major news events. Certainly in the in the uh, police shooting a couple of weeks ago, I uh, believe the one in Minnesota that was, you know, largely carried out with the, with a woman who was would, was broadcasting that on her Facebook account. And you know, we're going to see much more of that. You know, it's just the the technology has become democratized. 
Yeah. You don't need special skills like you used to and before. Therefore, the jobs become a little bit more blending together. We can now, we, you know, rather than having specialties in terms of responsibilities that were very focused, technology or content, you know, you'll see the jobs that are very much, I can, you know, it's, it's, I can handle this phone, I can handle a camera. You're right, the TVU backpacks that let me go live just off of a backpack with high quality, you know, HD type signals are ubiquitous now. They're cheap and stations that, you know, now have five or six of those rather than having one or two expensive live trucks that had 40,000 buttons. And you're right, they were clunky and you had to worry about lightning and other things out there. You know, they had a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges that. So that's also one of the fun things about our business. So we can do so much more with the technology that just keeps changing every year. And it also, you know, so people, do, again, the good thing about that is that when you see that, you know, 99% of our people see that and say, ah, we have to change because consumers are doing something different. They have their phones, they can do this themselves, or, or we can talk to them differently, or we can produce better content faster. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with cheaper technology doesn't mean that, you know, our jobs are getting easier and, and it doesn't mean that viewers or consumers expectations are dropping. In fact, no, they're getting they're getting more sophisticated now. OK, so let me ask. This is more of a philosophical question than a technical question. That is, I listened to a podcast recently about the difference of opinion of news and is news designed as an education platform or is news designed as a entertainment platform, in your opinion, which way do you think it leans? Well, I think the most successful, you know, long-lasting businesses have found a place for both at some part of the equation. So there's been a lot of talk in the last week or so about Fox News and the Fox News Channel in particular, with with Roger Ailes's departure, but also about his legacy. And uh, I read somewhere this morning Dan Abrams, who's an NBC guy, correspondent. But for a year, actually ran MSNBC, and he didn't know anything about running a network. He said, "You know, I just try to do what Roger was doing, which was uh, he rather, you know, Dan said, I can't go after the conservatives. Roger has them locked up. I, we can try to make MSNBC the same as Fox News to the people on the left." Now, in there, you ask the question: Is it education or is it entertainment? And you know, there's a little bit of both in there. I mean, right? So if you're watching O'Reilly, you're going to learn a few things. He's certainly going to tweak how you feel about something. You might, if you're an O'Reilly guy you know, fall in line and say, he's my guy. He champions what I believe in. He's going to ask the questions I want asked to the people he's interviewing. But is not entertainment value at the same time? Do you not just like watching him because he's good on television? And does he, as a personality, not compel you, if you're a fan of his, to watch five nights a week? Mm-hmm. Right? So if you don't have the entertainment, if you don't have something that compels me to want to watch, to choose to spend my time with you, then there's not any reason to come back. Remember, and again, the internet, I can learn anything I want to by going to Google. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can't learn on Google is what has yet to happen that will be reported in real time, but Google will have that 15 minutes later. Yeah. Twitter will have it 15 seconds later. So when, in, when you look at that and you look at the change in technology, I can tell you from my standpoint as a consumer, I used to come to my office every morning. First thing I do is go to the website of the different news feeds that I wanted uh, to see what was online. Because uh, I went from the newspaper then to online. Now it's an app. I don't even go to the website anymore. And so now everything's somewhat app-driven. Do you see that morphing more and more to, to all consumers to where maybe even you know live broadcasting, like you said, at 6 and 10, even website with content will morph into where you pretty much just go to an app. You can watch what's going on live from the app. You can read the information on the app. Everything's app-driven. No need, I guess, to even have a 6 and 10 news channel. 
Well, I think there are two different things you're talking about there. One is the the timing of newscasts. I'll put that aside for a moment. The other thing is kind of apps versus open, you know, and, and so there, there are people at different waves. Since Apple first put apps in a store back, I guess, in 2007, 2008, we've all rushed to create apps. And the one thing about apps that we love about apps is they do go to a brand loyalty. So here in Cincinnati, I, want, would, I would want you to have the WCPO app, right? Because if you have the app on your screen, you're more likely to use it. Uh, obviously, if you don't have it, you can't use it. Uh, but you're more likely to consume our product if the app is on your screen. Also, with technology on both Apple and Android, I can send you notifications. So I can interrupt your day on your most intimate device, your phone. I can interrupt whatever it is you're doing on that device with some kind of urgent message if I choose to. You're giving me permission to do that. You know, the apps, apps breed loyalty, which is good. We want loyal customers. I talked about that earlier, how we need people to still identify with our brands. And an app is really a good way of doing that. But the bulk of our traffic still comes, you know, from people who find us from outside sources. And Facebook and Google are the, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's something around the notion of between 60 and 80 percent of most news sites' traffic comes from Facebook and Google. There, people might just be looking for information or on Facebook, you know, somebody posts, one of your friends posted a link that also interested you. You clicked on it. You're, in, you know, you don't care about the source. You just want to read, you know, what the story was about. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that traffic is kind of bounced through or kind of comes in once and then doesn't have any loyalty to the brand. So therefore, they just close the window and go to do something else. Going back to the notion of scheduled, you know, news for video, sure, that's, that's, that was always the efficient way of doing it. You know, we established over decades habits of viewing. You knew that in the central time zone that at 10 o'clock at night, you know, prime time programming would end and you would watch your favorite news program at 10 o'clock at night. But our biggest competition at 10 o'clock at night are even worse on the East Coast or the Eastern time zone, Pacific time zone, where it's 11 o'clock at night. Our biggest competition, besides the aforementioned friends and family on Facebook, is the fact that your our biggest competition is your favorite program on television. So if you're watching television or watching a video device like an iPad or a laptop or your phone, I'm not competing against three other networks or 500 channels on a cable or satellite box. I'm competing against your favorite programs. Could be mm -hmm. Netflix, it could be Apple TV, it could be, you know, a YouTube series, it could DVR just be even. Exactly, DVR. So something that you recorded earlier that day or 2 weeks ago, mm -hmm. it's your favorite program at that hour and you don't need to start watching that show at at 10 o'clock. You could have been watching that show at 9:47 and you're 10 minutes into it, you're totally sucked into it and not even thinking about, oh, it's 10 o'clock time for news. So we do, we still serve, you know, in-pattern newscasts because there's still plenty of television viewers out there who do watch us live. Live programming is still hard to beat. Television does that very well. Sporting events, political conventions, other things, you know, where it's tied to a schedule, we're still really good at that. But everything else is is really, um, it's, it's, it's a challenge because you have if, if you're watching us at nine o'clock, your favorite NBC or CBS show at nine o'clock, then you're going to, um, uh, you know, we have a chance to hold you until ten, and that's obviously one of our strategies, retaining who's already there. But to get people to think about tuning us in, when they probably have two screens in their hand and a remote control also in their hand, you know, what's the, you know, and and no longer the for many people, the habit of like, it's 10 o'clock, I have to get plugged in because I can't find information anywhere else. Mm -hmm. That scarcity is long gone. Yeah, it is. So what do you think about, I read a story the other day, um, one of the favorite media that I consume is podcasts. And mm -hmm. a big player in the space recently is a company called Gimlet. 
and they're owned by Alex Bloomberg, who is a former NPR journalist, and he struck out on his own, started a private podcasting network, and they're one of the most popular networks around. They're for profit, so they're not so they're but they're still asking for donations similar to how NPR works. And they have a subscription you can do and you pay for five bucks is I think the minimum per month. And one of the interesting things they have is they give you access to certain Slack channels, so internal communication tools with the hosts. So the draw, and they're seeing a lot of activity on that. So the draw is not necessarily the media itself. Those people are going to be looking at it, but they want the intimacy with the talent. So I think maybe is that something that's going to help propel TV stations is they feel they can trust certain people that are giving them the news and not necessarily the exact story. They just know that I'm going to tune in to this station because I trust this person or this group of people. Well, there's still a brand yeah. that and that brand conveys a certain type of emotion for a consumer. You want it to trust is a big part of that. Or I feel like I'll be informed by then or terms of a host. You know, I just like that person. I want to get to know that person better. Whenever they speak, I respond. I feel something that they say in terms of, you know, like an NPR, it might not be so much the host because it's not really a host driven format. Even if you have a favorite host on all things considered, mm. it frankly is the, the brand is in their content. You know, the types of stories that they will tell that other organizations won't tell. Mm-hmm. We also are in, you know, Scripps is now a major player in the podcasting space. We acquired Midroll, which is a large podcasting organization. Uh, they produce their own podcasts, Bill Simmons, and now we've got a new one starting with Katie Couric, several other, David Gregory, several political or news people, but also just pop culture celebrities at the same time. And we also broker other podcasts as well. So we are getting into that space for some of the same reasons you mentioned. You know, podcast podcast users, podcast listeners are loyalists. You know, once they, you know, once they get hooked on a podcast, they're more likely to return and affiliate with that brand. The Slack channel is, again, another way for a premium experience that you can become more a part of the brand or more a part of the program or more a part of the content. And what does that do? Obviously, they're looking for multiple types of subscription revenue, or at least you know, get the, you got subscribers who will pay money directly to the producers. You also have, again, a very high-quality advertising experience. What we're thinking about podcasting is the, the richness of advertising integration you know, podcast listeners get that, you know, when uh, for a lot of people, you know, the uh, serial podcast was a great entry into podcasting. And, you know, how many people don't know MailChimp out of that? Well, even if you never needed a mail email program, you know, the quirky kind of weird, you know, MailChimp spots that you heard every week once or twice in an episode, in a sense, you know, felt native to the program because mm-hmm. it became part of that brand. But also it's like, Okay, I know. I know. You know, it's certainly embedded in my mind, and you know, it's still a, it can be a very quality experience for advertisers as well. So we do like that business because I guess the authenticity, and because there's it's so niche, you know, the quality of the content such that it's relevant for a targeted audience. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's also you know, with news, you only have you have a limited amount of time to try and convey your story, especially when it's being broadcast and you have deadlines and time limits. Do you think it's the in-depthness that's drawing people in as well? You know, you can go as long as you want on a podcast. A podcast you can. And frankly, in our digital websites with digital video, we can do all that, too. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, you one nice thing about the podcasting environment is once people figure out how it works, it's a couple of steps you've got to make to figure out what does a podcast mean? How do I where do I go find it? You know, once they get past that initial threshold and then they find one that they like, you know, they're kind of hooked on that one. And some people are avid listeners of a dozen podcasts a week. 
Mm-hmm. You know, others kind of have their one, and that's what they do. It's a different medium because in television, we're still in a linear environment. It's 24 hours a day, and, you know, it's based on a pattern. It's based on routine, and it's based on habit, we hope. And that habit will drive loyalty for people who need that. But you're right. It's, you know, we have th- if it's a 30-minute newscast and we've got seven or eight minutes of commercials in there, and you've got to space those commercials around the, the half hour. So, you know, you've got now three or four or five-minute blocks of content. And, you know, we're, we've been researched over this for 50 years. So we know that consumers, you know, pretty much prefer news before weather, unless weather's big, then you put it before news, Mm -hmm. you know, breaking news, the hard stuff goes first. And then the light stuff goes at the end. You've seen that pattern your entire life. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the way the audience consumes content. It's just the best way still to do it on that platform. Mm -hmm. You know, print, you look at, you can think of all different ways that newspapers change in the last 10 years. And there have been changes in the in the print publishing industry for newspapers over the last 10 years. Graphics, looks, the way writing, the way people write is changed. Certainly layouts and design, all that's changed. But, you know, you're not, you can't put video on print. Right. So, you know, that just you're just not going to be able to do a podcasting element like all the time you want when people are counting on you for the next show that's going to come in the, in the pattern. So there's only so much you can do with the medium you have. We like being in lots of different mediums because we can explore you know, where television might have a time limitation, a platform like podcasting doesn't necessarily. Now, the brand might dictate your podcast typically go between 20 and 45 minutes. That's part of your brand also. We're going to have one conversation with one guest, and that's your brand. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do three guests if you wanted to. You can make me a three-minute interview and have somebody else be three minutes. The, the technology is not limiting you. It's, it's what your brand is and what your audience is coming to expect. Where do you see podcasting going? I'm not the expert at it, so I'll give you a kind of a consumer you know, a consumer feel to it. We, again, the company invested heavily, our company invested heavily into that industry and it's been fun to watch. I'm not integrated with that side of the company, so I don't get to see from the inside what they do. But when you look, you know, I think one of the things our company likes that certainly me as a consumer is you look at the, I used the word authenticity earlier. I also would put that side by side with quality. So when you get quality conversations, quality information from a brand, and often the brand is a person whom you trust, then, you know, there's a richness in that experience that, and, and, and what audio gives is that intimacy that you, you can't get with other formats, right? Mm -hmm. There's a beauty in that. And I, that's what I, that's what excites me. I think about podcasting as much as anything. I can get, I can get topics that I want Mm -hmm. that, you know, my podcasting list is different from yours. But I can also, you know, not just not just the topic or the information, but also from a style and a, you know, a link that meets my needs. If I've got a 20 minute subway ride, then a, a 45 minute podcast might frustrate me because I've got to stop it in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then and then go into work and then pick it back later on. But I might want 15 minutes. Right. Because that's my need. That's what my consumer need is. And mm-hmm. so, you know, but that's the great thing about it is is the is the the podcasting ecosystem is so diverse that you can find greatness in every corner. It just sure. how I define great will be different from how you define great. Well, let me pivot just a little bit, kind of bring us back to the subject of leadership and that kind of end the conversation with this. And And you mentioned the recruiting side. You know, when you're looking for talent, when you're looking for people to come in, do you look for leadership ability? And if the answer to that is yes, what does it look like to you? When you see leadership in someone, how do you identify that? Sometimes you can see it in person. A lot of stuff what I do is over the phone, so it's a little bit harder to get set off the front. But things I can determine off the phone, right? How do they speak about 
the environment they're in right now, even if they're looking for a job, how do they talk about their past experiences, right? And I generally want to hear a positive recounting of their journey, even if something, a job ended poorly. Maybe hey, some people get fired and sometimes it's not a bad thing, but did they, how do they frame that story? Did they learn from it? Do they still speak well of other things around that journey? I also look for vision. I, I, I tell people, you know, I, I always ask a question about vision. Where do you see this going? Kind of what you've asked me. And I open a door and I don't have a path to that door. I just open the door and I want you to walk in. And when, I, when you walk in, I want you to see, wow, look at all these things we could talk about. I'm excited about this, this, and this. Even if my interests are somewhere else, I just want you to walk in the door and imagine with me for a few moments. You'd be surprised. I talk to a lot of people, a lot of really smart people who will walk at the door and just look at their feet and say, Where do I, what step, you know, what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. When I'm just looking for vision, I'm looking for imagination. I'm looking for that sense of we don't have it figured out right now. We don't. Every one of our business models is threatened. There's millions of competitors, some big beasts, you know, Facebook being one of those, Google being one of those, the, the other in our space competitors that people would identify as our competitors. But it's that notion of, I know we don't have the answer yet, but I can't wait to help figure out where it's going to be. That if initiative. I get a little bit of that yeah. from somebody I talk to on the phone, I'm, I'm writing this down and I'm saying, good, 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 good. It happens about one out of every 10 conversations, believe it or not. Just someone who will walk in that door and imagine with me for a few moments without kind of feeling like they got to stay at the gate. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. I've worked for a lot of television leaders, and I'll say the two traits that always stuck out to me as really good leaders were, were the ability to stay calm under pressure because you are frequently under a lot of pressure. I mean, breaking news is one of the most stressful type of environments you can be in a corporate environment, and you have to just keep it together and get done what you need to get done and make sure that all the resources are where they need to be. And then the second one is listening to your your staff and your people. And if they have ideas and directions they want to go, not poo-pooing it or saying, no, we don't do it that way, but listening to the, the person and saying, I want to listen to you and I think your opinion has value and I want to go that direction if it works for us. You've identified two very different style or needs of leadership, but they're both needed often by the same person. So mm-hmm. in some situations, you just need someone to call the shots. You need to know who's in charge and whatever that person says, I need the team to go do that. There's no time for discussion. There's no time for a vote. There's no time to send it to a subcommittee. No, this is what we got to do right now because someone's got to make a decision. I'm making the decision we're going to go. But if you're doing that all the time, you're not empowering people to develop their own leadership skills. You're not listening to other ideas or voices in the room who might have a better idea. And sometimes the choice is between two good things. We could do this or we could do this. and Either would be fine. Well, if it's me as the leader making the decision all the time, Or worse, if my staff feels like, well, yeah, we could do either one. Let's go see what Chip says. And that's their only automatic response. That's not how you build an organization. That's not how you build an organization that will sustain itself and replicate itself for the next generation to come. So you all, you know, leaders have to develop other leaders. And we call it, you know, we have leadership at all levels. I expect the person who just walked in to the organization, perhaps at the lowest level, to feel like they have leadership responsibilities, not just an invitation to lead, but that they're charged with finding an area in which they can lead. If they've got an idea, they should feel compelled to share it. If they have thoughtful criticism, there's a channel for that, but they should take advantage of that channel. And wherever they are, they are placed with making that spot better. They can lead from their corner. And, you know, if you don't, if you, if it's just one person doing all that all day long, it's not a great place to work. And it's a place that won't sustain itself 
whether that person leaves, then no one else is empowered or equipped, uh, or even if, you know, no one can be there 24 hours a day in a newsroom that requires 24-hour attention, right? Right. Absolutely. Thank you, Chip, so much, seriously, for spending some time and sharing with us. I've learned a lot. It's always interesting to talk to somebody who's kind of in an industry and knows kind of the behind the scenes, what's going on and the struggles and being as transparent as you were about, you know, kind of where you're at and where you're headed and what the, you know, what you need to do and the kind of talent you need to recruit. It's really interesting. I know our listeners love to hear interesting conversations like this. I know I do. So again, thank you so much for being on our show today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you both for inviting me, Randy and Chip. I enjoyed the time. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.